Chapter 5 of The Portrait of Mr. W. H. by Oscar Wilde. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 A young Elizabethan, who was enamoured of a girl so white that he named her Alba, has left on record the impression produced on him by one of the first performances of Love's Labours Lost. Admirable though the actors were, and they played in cunning wise, he tells us, especially those who took the lover's parts, he was conscious that everything was feigned, that nothing came from the heart, that though they appeared to grieve, they felt no care, and were merely presenting a show in jest. Yet suddenly this fanciful comedy of unreal romance became to him, as he sat in the audience, the real tragedy of his life, the moods of his own soul seemed to have taken shape and substance, and to be moving before him. His grief had a mask that smiled, and his sorrow wore gay raiment. Behind the bright and quickly changing pageant of the stage he saw himself, as one sees one's image in a fantastic glass. The very words that came to the actor's lips were wrung out of his pain, their false tears were of his shedding. There are few of us who have not felt something akin to this. We become lovers when we see Romeo and Juliet, and Hamlet makes us students. The blood of Duncan is upon our hands, with Timon we rage against the world, and when Leah wanders out upon the heath, the terror of madness touches us. Ours is the white sinlessness of Desdemona, and ours also the sin of Iago. Art even the art of fullest scope and widest vision can never really show us the external world. All that it shows us is our own soul, the one world of which we have any real cognizance. And the soul itself, the soul of each one of us, is to each one of us a mystery. It hides in the dark and broods, and consciousness cannot tell us of its workings. Consciousness, indeed, is quite inadequate to explain the contents of personality. It is art, and art only, that reveals us to ourselves. We sit at the play with the woman we love, or listen to the music in some Oxford garden, or stroll with our friend through the cool galleries of the Pope's house at Rome, and suddenly we become aware that we have passions of which we have never dreamed, thoughts that make us afraid, pleasures whose secret has been denied to us, sorrows that have been hidden from our tears. The actor is unconscious of our presence. The musician is thinking of the subtlety of the fugue, of the tone of his instrument. The marble gods that smile so curiously at us are made of insensate stone. But they have given form and substance to what was within us. They have enabled us to realise our personality, and a sense of perilous joy, or some touch or thrill of pain, or that strange self-pity that man so often feels for himself, comes over us and leaves us different. Some such impression the sonnets of Shakespeare had certainly produced on me, as from opal dawns to sunsets of withered rose, I read and re-read them in garden or chamber, it seemed to me that I was deciphering the story of a life that had once been mine, unrolling the record of a romance that, without my knowing it, had coloured the very texture of my nature, had dyed it with strange and subtle dyes. Art, 
as so often happens, had taken the place of personal experience. I felt as if I had been initiated into the secret of that passionate friendship, that love of beauty and beauty of love, of which Marsilio Ficino tells us, and of which the sights, in their noblest and purest significance, may be held to be the perfect expression. Yes, I had lived it all. I had stood in the round theatre with its open roof and fluttering banners, had seen the stage draped with black for a tragedy, or set with gay garlands for some brighter show. The young gallants came out with their pages, and took their seats in front of the tawny curtain that hung from the satire-carved pillars of the inner scene. They were insolent and debonair in their fantastic dresses, some of them wore French lovelocks, and white doublets stiff with Italian embroidery of gold thread, and long hose of blue or pale yellow silk. Others were all in black, and carried huge plumed hats. These affected the Spanish fashion. As they played at cards, and blew thin wreaths of smoke from the tiny pipes that the pages lit for them, the truant prentices and idle schoolboys that thronged the yard mocked them. But they only smiled at each other. In the side-boxes some masked women were sitting. One of them was waiting with hungry eyes and bitten lips for the drawing back of the curtain. As the trumpet sounded for the third time she leant forward, and I saw her olive skin and raven's wing hair. I knew her, she had marred for a season the great friendship of my life, yet there was something about her that fascinated me. The play changed according to my mood. Sometimes it was Hamlet. Taylor acted the prince, and there were many who wept when Ophelia went mad. Sometimes it was Romeo and Juliet. Burbage was Romeo. He hardly looked the part of the young Italian, but there was a rich music in his voice, and passionate beauty in every gesture. I saw As You Like It, and Cymbeline, and Twelfth Night, and in each play there was someone whose life was bound up into mine, who realised for me every dream, and gave shape to every fancy. How gracefully he moved! The eyes of the audience were fixed on him. And yet it was in this century that it all happened. I had never seen my friend, but he had been with me for many years, and it was to his influence that I had owed my passion for Greek thought and art, and indeed all my sympathy with the Hellenic spirit. Philosophen met erotos. How that phrase had stirred me in my Oxford days. I did not understand then why it was so, but I knew now. There had been a presence beside me always. Its silver feet had trod night's shadowy meadows, and the white hands had moved aside the trembling curtains of the dawn. It had walked with me through the grey cloisters, and when I sat reading in my room it was there also. What, though I had been unconscious of it? The soul had a life of its own, and the brain its own sphere of action. There was something within us that knew nothing of sequence or extension, and yet, like the philosopher of the ideal city, was the spectator of all time and of all existence. It had senses that quickened, passions that came to birth, spiritual ecstasies of contemplation, ardours of fiery-coloured love. It was we who were unreal, and our conscious life was the least important part of our development. The soul, the secret soul, was the only reality.
how curiously it had all been revealed to me. A book of sonnets, published nearly three hundred years ago, written by a dead hand and in honour of a dead youth, had suddenly explained to me the whole story of my soul's romance. I remembered how, once in Egypt, I had been present at the opening of a frescoed coffin that had been found in one of the basalt tombs at Thebes. Inside there was the body of a young girl swathed in tight bands of linen and with a gilt mask over the face. As I stooped down to look at it, I had seen that one of the little withered hands held a scroll of yellow papyrus covered with strange characters. How I wished now that I had had it read to me. It might have told me something more about the soul that hid within me, and had its mysteries of passion of which I was kept in ignorance. Strange that we knew so little about ourselves, and that our most intimate personality was concealed from us. Were we to look in tombs for our real life, and in art for the legend of our days? Week after week I pored over these poems, and each new form of knowledge seemed to me a mode of reminiscence. Finally, after two months had elapsed, I determined to make a strong appeal to Erskine to do justice to the memory of Cyril Graham, and to give to the world his marvellous interpretation of the sonnets, the only interpretation that thoroughly explained the problem. I have not any copy of my letter, I regret to say, nor have I been able to lay my hand upon the original, but I remember that I went over the whole ground, and covered sheets of paper with passionate reiteration of the arguments and proofs that my study had suggested to me. It seemed to me that I was not merely restoring Cyril Graham to his proper place in literary history, but rescuing the honour of Shakespeare himself from the tedious memory of a commonplace intrigue. I put into the letter all my enthusiasm. I put into the letter all my faith. No sooner, in fact, had I sent it off than a curious reaction came over me. It seemed to me that I had given away my capacity for belief in the Willie Hughes theory of the sonnets, that something had gone out of me, as it were, and that I was perfectly indifferent to the whole subject. What was it that had happened? It is difficult to say. Perhaps, by finding perfect expression for a passion, I had exhausted the passion itself. Emotional forces, like the forces of physical life, have their positive limitations. Perhaps the mere effort to convert anyone to a theory involves some sort of renunciation of the power of credence. Influence is simply a transference of personality, a mode of giving away what is most precious to oneself, and its exercise produces a sense and it may be a reality of loss. Every disciple takes away something from his master. Or perhaps I had become tired of the whole thing, wearied of its fascination, and, my enthusiasm having burnt out, my reason was left to its own unimpassioned judgment. However it came about, and I cannot pretend to explain it, there was no doubt that Willie Hughes suddenly became to me a mere myth, an idle dream, the boyish fancy of a young man who, like most ardent spirits, was more anxious to convince others than to be himself convinced. I must admit that this was a bitter disappointment to me. I had gone through every phase of this great romance. I had lived with it, and it had become part of my nature. How was it that it had left me?
had i touched upon some secret that my soul desired to conceal or was there no permanence in personality did things come and go through the brain silently swiftly and without footprints like shadows through a mirror were we at the mercy of such impressions as art or life chose to give us it seemed to me to be so it was at night-time that this feeling first came to me i had sent my servant out to post the letter to erskine and was seated at the window looking out at the blue and gold city the moon had not yet risen and there was only one star in the sky but the streets were full of quickly moving and flashing lights and the windows of devonshire house were illuminated for a great dinner to be given to some of the foreign princes then visiting london i saw the scarlet liveries of the royal carriages and the crowd hustling about the sombre gates of the courtyard suddenly i said to myself i have been dreaming and all my life for these two months has been unreal there was no such person as willie hughes something like a faint cry of pain came to my lips as i began to realise how i had deceived myself and i buried my face in my hands struck with a sorrow greater than any i had felt since boyhood after a few moments i rose and going into the library took up the sonnets and began to read them but it was all to no avail they gave me back nothing of the feeling that i had brought to them they revealed to me nothing of what i had found hidden in their lines had i merely been influenced by the beauty of the forged portrait charmed by that shelley-like face into faith and credence or as erskine had suggested was it the pathetic tragedy of cyril graham's death that had so deeply stirred me i could not tell to the present day i cannot understand the beginning or the end of this strange passage in my life however as i had said some very unjust and bitter things to erskine in my letter i determined to go and see him as soon as possible and make my apologies to him for my behaviour accordingly the next morning i drove down to birdcage walk where i found him sitting in his library with the forged picture of willie hughes in front of him my dear erskine i cried i have come to apologise to you to apologise to me he said what for for my letter i answered you have nothing to regret in your letter he said on the contrary you have done me the greatest service in your power you have shown me that cyril graham's theory is perfectly sound i stared at him in blank wonder you don't mean to say that you believe in willie hughes i exclaimed why not he rejoined you have proved the thing to me do you think i cannot estimate the value of evidence but there is no evidence at all i groaned sinking into a chair when i wrote to you i was under the influence of a perfectly silly enthusiasm i had been touched by the story of cyril graham's death fascinated by his artistic theory enthralled by the wonder and novelty of the whole idea i see now that the theory is based on a delusion the only evidence for the existence of willie hughes is that picture in front of you and that picture is a forgery don't be carried away by mere sentiment in this matter whatever romance may have to say about the willie hughes theory reason is dead against it i don't understand you said erskine looking at me in amazement 
you have convinced me by your letter that Willie Hughes is an absolute reality. Why have you changed your mind? Or is all that you have been saying to me merely a joke? I cannot explain it to you, I rejoined, but I see now that there is really nothing to be said in favour of Cyril Graham's interpretation. The sonnets may not be addressed to Lord Pembroke. They probably are not. But for heaven's sake, don't waste your time in a foolish attempt to discover a young Elizabethan actor who never existed, and to make a phantom puppet the centre of the great cycle of Shakespeare's sonnets. I see you don't understand the theory, he replied. My dear Erskine, I cried, not understand it? Why, I feel as if I had invented it. Surely my letter shows you that I not merely went into the whole matter, but that I contributed proofs of every kind. The one flaw in the theory is that it presupposes the existence of the person whose existence is the subject of dispute. If we grant that there was in Shakespeare's company a young actor of the name of Willie Hughes, it is not difficult to make him the object of the sonnets. But as we know that there was no actor of this name in the company of the Globe Theatre, it is idle to pursue the investigation further. But that is exactly what we don't know, said Erskine. It is quite true that his name does not occur in the list given in the first folio, but, as Cyril pointed out, that is rather a proof in favour of the existence of Willie Hughes than against it, if we remember his treacherous desertion of Shakespeare for a rival dramatist. Besides, and here I must admit that Erskine made what seems to me now a rather good point, though at the time I laughed at it, there is no reason at all why Willie Hughes should not have gone upon the stage under an assumed name. In fact, it is extremely probable that he did so. We know that there was a very strong prejudice against the theatre in his day, and nothing is more likely than that his family insisted upon his adopting some nom de plume. The editors of the first folio would naturally put him down under his stage name, the name of which he was best known to the public. But the sonnets were of course an entirely different matter, and in the dedication to them the publisher very properly addresses him under his real initials. If this be so, and it seems to me the most simple and rational explanation of the matter, I regard Cyril Graham's theory as absolutely proved. "'But what evidence have you?' I exclaimed, laying my hand on his. "'You have no evidence at all. It is a mere hypothesis. And which of Shakespeare's actors do you think that Willie Hughes was? The pretty fellow Ben Johnson tells us of, who was so fond of dressing up in girls' clothes?' "'I don't know,' he answered rather irritably. I have not had time to investigate the point yet, but I feel quite sure that my theory is the true one. Of course, it is a hypothesis, but then it is a hypothesis that explains everything, and if you had been sent to Cambridge to study science, instead of to Oxford to dawdle over literature, you would know that a hypothesis that explains everything is a certainty. Yes, I am aware that Cambridge is a sort of educational institute, I murmured, I am glad I was not there. My dear fellow, said Erskine, suddenly turning his keen grey eyes on me, you believe in Cyril Graham's theory. You believe in Willie Hughes. You know that the sonnets are addressed to an actor, but for some reason or other you won't acknowledge it. 
I wish I could believe it, I rejoined. I would give anything to be able to do so, but I can't. It is a sort of moonbeam theory, very lovely, very fascinating, but intangible. When one thinks that one has got hold of it, it escapes one. No, Shakespeare's heart is still to us a closet never pierced with crystal eyes, as he calls it in one of the sonnets. We shall never know the true secret of the passion of his life. Erskine sprang from the sofa and paced up and down the room. We know it already, he cried, and the world shall know it some day. I had never seen him so excited. He would not hear of my leaving him and insisted on my stopping for the rest of the day. We argued the matter over for hours, but nothing that I could say could make him surrender his faith in Cyril Graham's interpretation. He told me that he intended to devote his life to proving the theory, and that he was determined to do justice to Cyril Graham's memory. I entreated him, laughed at him, begged of him, but it was to no use. Finally we parted, not exactly in anger, but certainly with a shadow between us. He thought me shallow, I thought him foolish. When I called on him again, his servant told me that he had gone to Germany. The letters that I wrote to him remained unanswered. Two years afterwards, as I was going into my club, the hall porter handed me a letter with a foreign postmark. It was from Erskine, and written at the Hôtel d'Angleterre, Cannes. When I had read it, I was filled with horror, though I did not quite believe that he would be so mad as to carry his resolve into execution. The gist of the letter was that he had tried in every way to verify the Willie Hughes theory, and had failed, and that, as Cyril Graham had given his life for this theory, he himself had determined to give his own life also to the same cause. The concluding words of the letter were these. I still believe in Willie Hughes, and by the time you receive this, I shall have died by my own hand for Willie Hughes's sake. For his sake, and for the sake of Cyril Graham, whom I drove to his death by my shallow scepticism and ignorant lack of faith. The truth was once revealed to you, and you rejected it. It comes to you now, stained with the blood of two lives. Do not turn away from it. It was a horrible moment. I felt sick with misery, and yet I could not believe that he would really carry out his intention. To die for one's theological opinions is the worst use a man can make of his life, but to die for a literary theory, it seemed impossible. I looked at the date. The letter was a week old. Some unfortunate chance had prevented my going to the club for several days, or I might have got it in time to save him. Perhaps it was not too late. I drove off to my rooms, packed up my things, and started by the night mail from Charing Cross. The journey was intolerable. I thought I would never arrive. As soon as I did, I drove to the Hôtel d'Angleterre. It was quite true. Erskine was dead. They told me that he had been buried two days before in the English cemetery. There was something horribly grotesque about the whole tragedy. I said all kinds of wild things, and the people in the hall looked curiously at me. 
suddenly lady erskine in deep mourning passed across the vestibule when she saw me she came up to me murmured something about her poor son and burst into tears i led her into her sitting-room an elderly gentleman was there reading a newspaper it was the english doctor we talked a great deal about erskine but i said nothing about his motive for committing suicide it was evident that he had not told his mother anything about the reason that had driven him to so fatal so mad an act finally lady erskine rose and said george left you something as a memento it was a thing he prized very much i will get it for you as soon as she had left the room i turned to the doctor and said what a dreadful shock it must have been for lady erskine i wonder that she bears it as well as she does oh she knew for months past that it was coming he answered knew it for months past i cried but why didn't she stop him why didn't she have him watched he must have been out of his mind the doctor stared at me i don't know what you mean he said well i cried if a mother knows that her son is going to commit suicide suicide he answered poor erskine did not commit suicide he died of consumption he came here to die the moment i saw him i knew that there was no chance one lang was almost gone and the other was very much affected three days before he died he asked me was there any hope i told him frankly that there was none and that he had only a few days to live he wrote some letters and was quite resigned retaining his senses to the last i got up from my seat and going over to the open window i looked out on the crowded promenade i remember that the brightly coloured umbrellas and gay parasols seemed to me like huge fantastic butterflies fluttering by the shore of a blue metal sea and that the heavy odour of violets that came across the garden made me think of that wonderful sonnet in which shakespeare tells us that the scent of these flowers always reminded him of his friend what did it all mean why had erskine written me that extraordinary letter why when standing at the very gate of death had he turned back to tell me what was not true was hugo right is affectation the only thing that accompanies a man up to the steps of the scaffold did erskine merely want to produce a dramatic effect that was not like him it was more like something i might have done myself no he was simply actuated by a desire to reconvert me to cyril graham's theory and he thought that if i could be made to believe that he too had given his life for it i would be deceived by the pathetic fallacy of martyrdom poor erskine i had grown wiser since i had seen him martyrdom was to me merely a tragic form of scepticism an attempt to realise by fire what one had failed to do by faith no man dies for what he knows to be true men die for what they want to be true for what some terror in their hearts tells them is not true the very uselessness of erskine's letter made me doubly sorry for him i watched the people strolling in and out of the cafes and wondered if any of them had known him the white dust blew down the scorched sunlit road and the feathery palms moved restlessly in the shaken air 
At that moment, Lady Erskine returned to the room carrying the fatal portrait of Willie Hughes. When George was dying, he begged me to give you this, she said. As I took it from her, her tears fell on my hand. This curious work of art hangs now in my library, where it is very much admired by my artistic friends, one of whom has etched it for me. They have decided that it is not a cloué, but an ouvrier. I have never cared to tell them its true history, but sometimes, when I look at it, I think there is really a great deal to be said for the Willie Hughes theory of Shakespeare's sonnets. End of chapter 5 End of the Portrait of Mr. W. H. by Oscar Wilde